One of my favorite movies is John Wayne's final film, The Shootist. Wayne plays a gunslinger dying of cancer, and he decides to exit this world on his own terms. He invites three villains to meet him on his birthday at the Metropole Saloon. He'll leave this world on the same day he arrived. And it's a classic shootout. The old Duke guns down the bad guys, and he goes out in a blaze of glory. It is a showdown for the ages. And that's what we have here in Luke chapter 20, a showdown for the ages. Jesus orchestrates a shootout with three villains, the chief priests and the scribes and the Jewish elders. You remember on Sunday, he sent them an invitation of sorts. By, draw, by driving out the money changers from the temple, Jesus had upset their power and their prophets. Surely this would set up a confrontation in the temple on Monday. And indeed it did. It was a theological shootout. The Jews, they squeezed off questions intended to trap Jesus. He returned fire with wisdom from above. And when the smoke had cleared, the bad guys were humiliated while Jesus was glorified by all. And that's where we pick up the action in the midst of this showdown in chapter 20, verse 20. So the Jews watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Understand that Jews were hoping that Jesus would slip up and say something that would be offensive to the Romans. This would let Rome do their dirty work for them. But then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God in truth. And do you hear some phony flattery there? You should. The Jews will butter Jesus up, and then they'll stick him with the butter knife. And here comes their first trap. Verse 22. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And this was a hot topic in Jewish culture at the time. The Roman poll tax was an existence tax. The assumption was that life was a right given to a person by Rome. But this flew in the face of the biblical truth that life comes from God. Either a yes or a no here could get Jesus into trouble. On the one hand, if he said, yes, pay the tax, then the Jews could portray Jesus as a traitor and a Roman collaborator. Orthodox Jews might even accuse him of idolatry, since the emperor who claimed to be God forged his image on the coins. Some Jews believed to use the secular currency to pay the tax was actually giving homage to an idol. On the other hand, if Jesus said, no, don't pay the tax, then they could accuse him of treason against Rome. The Romans were tolerant of divergent religious beliefs, but they were unbending when it came to political loyalty. And thus the Jews saw this as the perfect question to trap Jesus. Verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness. And he said to them, Why do you test me? Show me a denarius. This was a small little silver coin, the size of about a dime. Jesus asks, whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, Caesar's. 
On the one side of the Roman denarius was a bust of the emperor. The caption read, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. On the other side were the words Pontifex Maximus, Latin for high priest. This denarius was a coin dedicated to the emperor. So Jesus said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people, and they marveled at his answer and kept silent. And 2,000 years later, we are still marveling at Jesus' answer. I love commentator Kent Hughes' summation. He says, the statement of our Lord was not only astounding the instant it was uttered, but it is even today universally acclaimed to be the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. In the ancient world, coins were understood to be the property of the person whose image was on them. Thus, Jesus is saying, if this is Caesar's coin, well, then give it back to him. But while you're at it, give to God what belongs to God. And where do we find God's image? Where is it stamped? His likeness. It's stamped on each of us. Mankind was made in God's image and in his likeness. And thus Jesus is saying, give your coins to Caesar, but give your life to God. And in this one brief but amazing statement, Jesus affirms both the validity and the limits of human government. God is the supreme authority. And yet human government has its place. The Caesar in Rome had the right to lay claim to a citizen's money in the form of taxes, but God can rightfully lay claim to our very lives. Round one of this final showdown goes to Jesus. And then verse 27, Then some of the Sadducees who denied that there is a resurrection came to him. Now, in the first century, among the Jewish leaders, there were two major sects. There were the Pharisees, and then there were the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the conservatives. The Sadducees were the liberals. The Sadducees only considered the first five books of Moses as inspired by God. They denied the existence of angels, the afterlife, and even the resurrection of the dead. And here it comes. You, you know what's coming. They denied the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. You knew that was coming. And it's the Sadducees who launch the next attack. They ask him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. And this was all spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's called the law of the liverite. Levir is the Latin word for brother-in-law. And the Jewish law said that if a man died, his brother was to marry his widow and sire a son to carry on his brother's name. This law was the backdrop of the story of Ruth. You remember reading that in the Old Testament. Now in verse 29, a case of conjecture is added. Now, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. 
And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner, the seven also. And they left no children and died. Reminds me of the woman who called her husband Henry. And why? Because he was the eighth. (laughs) Just thought I'd need a little help on that one. Ever hear of the woman who thought she could have 16 husbands? You ever hear of this? Woman thought she could have 16 husbands. For at the wedding, the pastor said, four better, four worse, four richer, four poorer. 16 husbands. At least this hypothetical woman in the story stopped at seven. Now, if this woman had actually existed, she would have been on the Jerry Springer show, no doubt about it. Nancy Grace would have wanted an interview. She would have been asked why she hated women and why she had killed off the seven brothers. Reminds me of another gal who had a dream. An angel told her, prepare yourself for widowhood. Your husband is about to die a violent death. The woman replied, I have just one question. Will I be acquitted? (laughs) Here, too, is a woman who buried seven husbands. Well, the Sadducees, they finished their tale in verse 32. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as wife. And I'm sure they're snickering even as they pose this question. They didn't even believe in the resurrection. Well, Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. In other words, in the resurrection, in the age to come, there will be no marriage among humans. Now, if you have a good marriage at present, this is probably bad news for you. If your marriage is not so good, you probably just breathe a sigh of relief. It won't last forever. Praise the Lord. Human marriage was created as a portrait of Jesus' relationship with his church. In heaven, there will be no marriage among humans. Why? Because we'll all be married to Jesus. And of course, this doesn't mean that there won't be intimacy among humans in heaven. I would imagine that in heaven, in the perfect environment, even the most casual of friendships will be more heartfelt than the deepest marriage here on earth. But heaven's dominant relationship will be that of Jesus and his church. Our marriage to the master will be the featured attraction in heaven. The depth and the intimacy we'll enjoy with Jesus will make human marriages unnecessary. Well, Jesus adds, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Angels are immortal. They never die. Resurrected humans now are given that same trait. They live forever. Jesus even calls them sons of the resurrection. One day, We who are believers in Jesus will receive resurrected bodies, will no longer be subject to death and to decay. Like angels, we'll be fit for the heavenly environment. As Paul writes, these mortal bodies must put on immortality. And then Jesus says in verse 37, 
But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. When he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Now, Jesus could have quoted numerous passages to prove the Old Testament taught the resurrection of the dead. But remember, the Sadducees only considered the first five books of Moses as inspired by God. This is why Jesus draws his argument from Moses and from Exodus chapter 3, from the burning bush passage. And here's Jesus' logic. If God is the God of the living, and he's also the God of Abraham, then Abraham, who lived 2,200 years ago, must still be alive and kicking. If God is the God of the living, then Abraham is still alive. Thus, the resurrection. Verse 39, then some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you've spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. Spiritual six guns have been blazing in the temple. The religious crowd are dead to rights. Jesus the shootist is still standing. But before he sticks his gun into his holster, Jesus has a question of his own. And he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David. Now remember, the word Christos is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. And in Jewish theology, Messiah was God's anointed. He was the eternal king who will come and establish Israel as an eternal kingdom. But there was an apparent contradiction between Jewish theologians, something that they had not addressed. Jesus points it out by quoting David in Psalm 110 verse 1. He says, now David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Good question. Second Samuel 7 verse 12 made it clear that Messiah would be the descendant of David. Yet David himself called the Messiah his Lord. You see in the problem? King David had many sons, but he only had one Lord. The only person greater than the king who could be his Lord was God himself. Thus Jesus is asking, how can Messiah be David's son and his Lord? The only way that he could be under David and over him simultaneously is if David's son was also God. If man was also God. The Jews saw Messiah in human terms only as son of David, but they never considered him as more than a man. And Jesus had claimed to be more than a man. He had claimed to be God. Here Jesus introduces the Jews to the biblical concept they had overlooked, that the Messiah was God, the Messiah's deity, that the Christ was God. See, their presuppositions of the Messiah were all wrong, and Jesus is here taking them back to Scripture, yet they refuse to go. Understand, they're going to crucify Jesus because he rightly and biblically claimed to be God, and he proves it here. Rather than continue this dialogue, at this point, they stop questioning him entirely. 
And sadly, they never go back to their false assumptions. The Jews grill Jesus on Monday. On Thursday, they'll kill him. Well, after the big shootout with the Jews in the temple, Jesus fires off one more round. Verse 45. Then in the hearing of all the people, right there in the temple where everybody could hear, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. The Jews that Jesus had just encountered were all show and no substance. They were hypocrites. Oh, the Jewish leaders dressed the priestly part. They talked the part. They played the part. But they preyed on innocent people. And they made a mockery of true worship. And Jesus says they'll receive the greater condemnation. And in chapter 21, Jesus spots a few of the guys that he had just described. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. Now, in the Jewish temple, there were 13 offering boxes. They were shaped like upside-down megaphones. And each of these boxes accumulated money for a different purpose. Some was for upkeep of the temple. Others was for charity, etc., etc. And the rich liked to make a pompous show of their giving. These priests would come in and they would give to God, but they were really trying to attract attention from men. Here Jesus' eye catches them. And he looks and he says, and he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. What a contrast to these rich Jews that were making a show of their giving. Here was a, a widow, a poor widow, dropping in two mites, two leptas, The mite was the Jewish lepta. It was a coin worth about one-eighth of a penny in our currency. From a strictly monetary point of view, these two mites were an inconsequential offering. That's not how Jesus saw it. So he said, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. You know, humans measure the value of an offering by the amount they give, whereas Jesus measures the amount by what's left over. We focus on the portion of the gift. God sees the proportion. Actually, few people, I think, know the joy of real giving. Real giving digs deep. As David once said, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. I mean, from week to week, do you truly give to God or do you merely leave him a tip? And then verse 5. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. Now they're in the temple at this time. And the temple in Jerusalem was a sight to behold. Josephus, the Jewish historian, he left us an eyewitness description of the temple. He wrote, the exterior of the temple lacked nothing. It astounded both mind and eye for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold 
The sun was no sooner up that it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was purest white. And of the donations that Jesus mentions here, King Herod, he gave a golden vine that had artistic clusters of grapes as tall as a man. The Egyptian king, Ptolemy, donated a golden desk. There were other donations that had been given to the temple. This temple in Jerusalem was a stunning sight. But Jesus said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus' prediction came true when the Roman legion sacked Jerusalem in 70 A.D. During the siege, one of the soldiers violated orders and threw a torch into the temple. It caught fire and it melted the gold that had adorned the outer walls. The liquid gold ran into the crevices between the stones and greedy soldiers pushed the stones over to retrieve the gold. Thus fulfilling Jesus' prophecy, not one stone would be left upon another. And you can go to Jerusalem today, and you can see those toppled stones, just as Jesus predicted. And so they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And in Matthew, the disciples ask these same questions. There, though, they ask them in the context of the signs concerning Jesus' second coming and the end of the age. And that becomes the scope of these next few verses. Not just the destruction of the temple, but the end of the age. Verse 8. And he said, Take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is drawn near, therefore do not go after them. And here's the first mark Jesus makes on the timeline. There will be false Christs and false claims. Don't panic. In this present age, in the age of man, spiritual deception will be status quo. And yet things will heat up. For when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified. For these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Here's another precursor of the end. Military conflict and mass chaos. And what else would you expect from a world that rejects the Prince of Peace? Chaos and conflict become run-of-the-mill when mankind runs away from God's will. And then verse 10, Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now, wars are not a sign in and of themselves. Wars are common among sinful men. But when they're fought on a global scale, it's the first sign that the end is near. It's interesting. Prior to 1914, the world had never seen a world war. Now we've had two. It's a sign that the end is nearing, as is, and there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines, and pestilences, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. 
this list appears in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus calls it the beginning of sorrows. Now, these could be events that occur in the Great Tribulation, described in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Judgments that happen after the church is raptured. Or they could occur before the rapture, or even both. They could start before the rapture and then continue on thereafter. In fact, here's today's question. Is Mother Nature warming up for the end? Every year now, we see similar catastrophes in increasing numbers. Earthquakes and floods and tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and fires. Is COVID-19 a pestilence? which means plague. How could it not be? Almost 2.9 million people have died from complications of the virus. In 2020, East Africa fought not only COVID-19, but a massive invasion of locusts and subsequent famine. That certainly classifies as a plague. The UN reports that 690 million people now go to bed hungry every night on this planet. Global hunger is on the rise. 10,000 children die of hunger-related causes each day. Add it all up, and we're being warned that we're nearing the last days. Verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. The persecution of Christians is also a sign of the end. The book of Revelation tells us that the great tribulation will be a bloody day for believers. And yet whether Jesus' prophecy occurs before or after the rapture, whenever a Christian is attacked for his or her faith, it's like God is putting a microphone in their face. Persecution very often turns into an opportunity for proclamation, Jesus tells us. And then he says, therefore settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which are all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. In other words, when persecution does raise its ugly head, the believer's job is to bear their back. God's job is to put words in their mouth. Thankfully, I've never been physically persecuted for my faith. But I am certain it's hard to be brave and articulate at the same time. And thus, Jesus here promises us that if we take care of the courage, His Spirit will supply the wisdom for us to speak. And next, Jesus gives an ominous warning. He says, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Seems like we're getting closer and closer to that these days. Folks who follow Jesus in the great tribulation, and there will be those, they'll pay a steep price. They'll die a martyr's death. And this is why if you can't live for him today, don't think you'll be able to die for him then. You know, there are places in the world where persecution is alive and well today, but none of it compares to the fiery trials that are still ahead. 
And in verses 18 and 19, Jesus encourages believers who are living in the end times. He says, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. Next, Jesus takes up the question his disciples asked him earlier. What about the destruction of the temple? He says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. Now, the history of Jerusalem's fall is a tragic one. The Romans cut off the supply lines, and they laid siege to the city for five months. It lasted five months. The historian Josephus was an eyewitness to the atrocities that occurred. And if you're a little queamish, you might want to close your ears for the next few moments. For Josephus tells us, of approximately 600,000 Jews who died of starvation during the siege. Their bodies were tossed over the walls of Jerusalem at a rate of 4,000 per day. Josephus writes these words. He says, Wives would snatch the food from husbands, children from fathers, and most pitiable of all, mothers from the very mouths of their infants. Old men were beaten clutching their food, and women were dragged by the hair, concealing what was in their hands. There was no compassion. Children were actually lifted up with the fragments to which they clung and dashed to the ground. The situation in Jerusalem during the siege was so desperate that Josephus watched one woman kill her own son, roast his body, eat half of it, and store the rest. He writes again, children with swollen figures roam like phantoms through the market and collapsed wherever their doom overtook them. Josephus even tells us that the Jews during the time, some of them swallowed their money and then surrendered to the enemy. And when a prisoner was seen picking coins from his excrement, the rumor spread that the Jews were full of gold. The Roman soldiers started gutting their prisoners in search of the loot. Josephus concludes, no other city ever endured such miseries, not since the world began. And the worst may still be ahead for the Jews. For many folks see here in Jesus' words a picture of the last day's battle for Jerusalem. Notice these predictions are for the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. All things were not fulfilled in 70 AD, as horrible as it was. Thus, I believe this is a reference to the Great Tribulation, when the end times Antichrist will surround Jerusalem as the Romans of old. These predictions are not just in the Jews' past, but they're, it's also in their future. And then verse 24, And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. Over a million Jews were slaughtered by the Roman legion in 70 AD. An additional 
95,000 Jews were taken into slavery by the Romans. And what has happened to Jerusalem since 70 AD is also a sad and grueling tale. 65 years later, in 135 BC, oh, I'm sorry, 135 AD, the Jews revolted again. This time, a man named Simon Bar Kokhba, he fought a guerrilla war against Rome, and he briefly took possession of Jerusalem. Incidentally, the Jewish leaders who had rejected Jesus hailed Bar Kokhba as their Messiah. He was the first false Christ to come. Bar Kokhba even tried to rebuild the temple, but his revolt was crushed when 580,000 Jews were killed by the Romans. This time, the Romans built a temple on the Jewish Temple Mount to the pagan god Jupiter and renamed Jerusalem Aelia Capitolina. And it became a capital crime for Jews to enter their former capital city. For the next five centuries, Jerusalem remained under Roman or Byzantine control. Jews were scattered worldwide. Then in 637 AD, with the rise of Islam, Muslims captured Jerusalem and renamed it again to Al-Quds, or the Holy. And from 637 to 1917, except for just a few brief periods during the Crusades, Jerusalem was ruled by Muslims. For 1,300 years, the former Jewish capital was governed by Gentiles while the Jews lived in dispersion, scattered among the nations, until our generation. And it's only in modern times that God has brought his people back to their ancient homeland. And today's Jewish control of Jerusalem is probably our most definitive biblical sign that we are truly living in the last days. For verse 24 tells us, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This verse means that when Jews take control of Jerusalem from the Gentiles, it'll mark a turning point in God's plan for mankind. That Gentile world domination will end and God will fulfill all his promises to Israel. And this event occurred, or at least it began to occur, on June the 6th, 1967. At the end of the Six-Day War, General Moshe Dayan led his Israeli paratroopers into the old city of Jerusalem. And in a bloody battle, took control of Jerusalem from the Arabs. On that day, for the first time in 1900 years, old Jerusalem was back in Jewish hands. The capital city of King David was now out from under Gentile control. And yet, sadly, Moshe Dayan made a mistake. Though Jerusalem was under Israel, Israeli military authority to pacify the Arabs, he partitioned the city into four quarters. The Armenian, the Christian, the Muslim, and the Jewish sections. And each quarter retained the ground most holy to its religion. The Armenians controlled Mount Zion and the upper room. Christians took control of the area around the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, whereas the Jewish quarter stretched all the way to the Wailing Wall, and the Muslims took control of the Temple Mount. 
Today, though Israeli soldiers still patrol the area of the Temple Mount, the religious activities are conducted under the authority of the Muslims, an organization known as the Waqf. And one of the rules imposed by the Muslims is a prohibition of Bibles on the Temple Mount. You can't bring your Bible onto Mount Moriah. At least you're not supposed to. But I've heard there's some sneaky pastors that are trying it anyway. Today, though, Jerusalem is no longer trampled by Gentiles. And it is a sure sign that God is returning his focus to the Jews and to the many promises that relate to the end times and to the establishment of his kingdom on this earth. The return of the Messiah is near. And verse 25 tells us, And there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Read the book of Revelation. It corresponds with these predictions. There is definitely a period yet future We call it the Great Tribulation, where God will judge this earth through these catastrophic signs. He'll do it for two reasons. God will punish this world, but he'll also purify the Jews. And this last seven years of intense judgment ends with the return of Jesus. For then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and with great glory. Jesus came the first time to earth humbly riding on a donkey, but he comes the second time in power and in great glory, riding on a white steed, a war horse. He'll return to right all wrongs and establish God's kingdom on this earth. What a day it'll be. I say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. For verse 28 tells us, now when these things begin to happen, look up. And lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. When you see the rise of global conflicts, when you see Israel back in her ancient homeland, when you see Mother Nature erupting with natural disasters and the increase of plagues and pestilence, don't get depressed and hang your head. Look up. Lift up your head. For Jesus is coming. Our longed-for redemption is drawing near. And then Jesus spoke to them a parable. He said, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Now, there are two possible interpretations here, and I'll just let you choose which one you agree with. Jesus may simply be saying that just as the greening of a plant's leaves is a sign of the changing seasons, then these signs that he's just mentioned in these verses indicate the end of the age. So when you go to Augusta National and you see the azaleas bloom, just be reminded that when you see these signs occur, my coming is near. That that could be as simple as what he's saying, or there could be more to it. In the scripture, the fig tree is often a symbol for Israel. And Jesus could be saying here that a sign of his return 
is the budding of the fig tree or the rebirth of the Jewish state. Now, the revival of modern Israel is an unprecedented event in the annals of world history. It's nothing short of a miracle. That a people scattered and homeless for 1,900 years have managed to retain their identity over that time, their nationalism, their language, their culture, their religion, and then come back together to form a nation is an event that has never occurred. Where are the Hittites today? Where are the Philistines we read about in the Old Testament today? And yet a fig tree has reblossomed in the land given to the father of the Jews, to Abraham. I believe that Israel's rebirth is certainly a sign that Jesus is coming soon. It's true. God's timepiece is not a Bulova or an Omega or a Rolex. It's the nation Israel. He says, for assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. And here is the most provocative part of Jesus's prophecy. This is where it gets really interesting. For if the budding of the fig tree is the rebirth of the nation Israel, then the generation of Christians that see that miracle take place are the ones who will be raptured by Jesus. And if you're having a hard time following me, that would mean us. In 1948, Israel became an independent state. In 1967, Israel took Jerusalem. The Jews will still control the land on which their temple stood. That hasn't happened yet. But our generation has seen amazing things. The liberation of a nation and its capital. So I say, wake up. Get ready. And Jesus says in verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And he's being emphatic. Jesus is saying that you can take his promises as well as all God's promises to the bank. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Now Jesus has preached a sermon to his disciples. He's warned them of what's yet future. Now he calls them to action. How do you respond to this? Well, don't get lulled asleep by the world's distractions. Hey, no party on earth is worth missing the marriage supper of the Lamb. Watch therefore. And pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And notice, we are promised an escape. You don't have to live through God's judgment of this earth. Before God's wrath comes down, the church will go up. At the second coming, Jesus will mop up. But at the rapture, he's going to snatch up those who trust him, and those who are waiting and watching on him. We need to be ready. We need to watch and pray. We should always stay in communication with our headquarters. Don't get distracted by this world. And then verse 37, and in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out 
and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Jesus and his disciples were probably camping in a garden called Gethsemane, right on the Mount of Olives, just across the Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount. The countdown to our salvation is ticking now. The cross is on the horizon. Jesus has told us about his second coming because now he's about to leave. He's about to go to the cross for your sins and for my sins. And we'll study that beginning next week in Luke chapter 22.